0: It's good to be with you guys today. Uh, My name's Tony. I have the privilege and the pleasure of being on pastoral staff here. I just love being a part of this body. Good to be with you this morning. If you're new visiting, checking us out, thanks for coming. Uh, It's fun to be in God's presence with you. Now, if you're a kid and you want to hang out with other kids, before you go, I just want to say, (laughs) you guys are awesome. Awesome. Feel free to go hang out. Miss Camellia's over there. Now, um, if you're an adult and you're stuck with me, we, um, we're going through a series uh, basically on what does it look like to practice the way of Jesus? Not simply think the thoughts of Jesus, but actually embody the practices of Jesus in our life together. So we have this acronym at Wellspring called ABLE. So ABLE is a way for us to ground, what does it look like to actually do stuff that Jesus would do? So we have practices, right? A stands for attend practices. Uh, B stands for bless practices. L is learn practices, like reading scripture. And today we're going to talk about E, which is eat, and we're going to talk about community. Now, if you want more of these, you can uh, go on our website. We have basically videos and PDFs for four different practices for each of these different uh, letters for attend, bless, learn, and eat. So you can kind of get a sense of different things that we think are important and what it means to practice the way of Jesus. Now, today we're going to talk about community. And I want to begin with a story. There's this dude named D.L. Moody. Anyone heard of him? So he's this kind of famous evangelist. There should be a picture of him that we'll put up. Uh, D.L. Moody is having a... uh, Or not? Maybe. No? Blank screen is what I see. All right. So, D.L. Moody, he's this guy, he's an evangelist in the 19th century, and he's having this conversation that I think actually is a conversation you and I might have today with someone in our culture. So, D.L. Moody, sitting in his office, and there's a guy who wants to talk about the possibility of being a Christian without participating in the church. Dude's smart. He's, having, he's leveraging these awesome arguments. He knows the Bible. He's kind of going at it with Moody. And Moody's sitting there listening. And as he's listening, he leans forward in his chair. And he grabs these like tong things and he pulls a flaming ember out of the fire. Just listening, the guy's going on, grabs it. And he just puts it sort of between them. Now, the guy's kind of distracted at this point. There's a burning fire, basically, in front of him, and he's watching it slowly cool. And eventually, the fire of the ember goes out. And the guy says to Moody, I I get your point. Moody's point is this, right? We can no more be formed into the image of Jesus outside a Christian community than a coal can burn outside of a fire. But like Moody's passionate conversation partner, we're shaped in a culture that tells us, you don't really need the church, you don't really need community. Right? We're shaped in a culture of radical individualism and consumerism, and so the air we breathe is just telling us all the time, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but you don't really need the church. I mean, I run into this all the time. I believe in Jesus. That's all I need. And that, that is true on one level. And yet, when we read the scriptures, we see a very different story being told. David Foster Wallace, he gave this really famous commencement address. He tells this sort of silly narrative about this older fish, or these two younger fish swimming in the water. Now we got background you're good. I feel like maybe I missed the joke. You know, it's like. Uh, so you have these two younger fish swimming in the water, and this older fish comes swimming by, and he's like, Hey guys, how's the water? And they look at the older fish, and they're like, What is water? And the truth is, right, we are like these fish. We swim in a culture shaped, saturated by individualism and consumerism, and we don't even recognize it's around us all the time. What is water? It's just the background assumption of what it means to breathe. And I guess this morning, I want to kind of lean into what does it look like for us to participate in real community? Now, I'm not I'm not gonna say that community is easy, I don't think it is. Often it's just safer, easier, and honestly a little more with the tide of our culture, just to sort of do our own thing on our own. And yet I I, I do think Moody is right. So this morning I want to take a stab at a picture of biblical community as it's sort of articulated and shaped in the scriptures. And while I I want to be careful to sort of not endorse sort of the the modern Instagram image of community, which is sort of this cool hipster with awesome coffee and vintage string lights, you know, in the background. The truth is, you know, biblical community is a place where we can find meaningful, meaningful friendships. But the truth is, right, that hopefully or often, The friendships are a product of biblical community, not the goal. What we'll see this morning is how God has made us to flourish. How God has designed the church to function. And I think how God wants to use us as a community to be his witnesses in the world. I want to start back in the beginning. So when we go, when God creates the world in Genesis, right? In the beginning. If you read the story, it's fascinating. One of the key themes is each day, God looks out what he's made, and he's like, mm, that is tov. That is good. You know, that is good stuff. Day two, he looks at it again. Man, that is good. Day three, day four, day five, end of day six, he looks at it all, and he's like, okay, people, that is tov mode." That is really good. Not only is each day good enough in and of itself, but the totality of all the days together are even better. So you come out of Genesis 1 and you're like, man, this God makes good stuff. Then you start Genesis 2. The first thing that is not good in all of creation... Genesis 2.18, it is not good for man to be alone. Wait, what? Everything was good to this point. Every single day, God creates this earth creature, Adam, out of the earth. Adam, and he's like, oh, this guy's good, but it's not good for man to be alone. In fact, God creates Adam intentionally alone so that he can underline the fact that it's not good for him to be alone. Notice that? If he had just created them at the same time, you just would keep reading. But because he created Adam alone, now he's emphasizing the fact, yeah, this is not good. G.J. Wenham in the Word Biblical Commentary writes, the divine observation that something is not right with man's situation is startling. See, in the beginning, God could have created each human being with a planet of their own to do whatever they wanted. Like, you realize creative possibilities were endless. He could have designed human beings to function as radical individualists. But this isn't what happens. He actually underlines the need for us to live in interdependent relationships by creating Adam alone and then saying, I think I'm going to make a helper suitable to him. Now, this has been interpreted in a lot of funky ways throughout history, but it's important to state this. Eve is not created as Adam's servant. He's not created to prepare meals and clean up after Adam. That is not what a helper means. Amen, glory. Thank you, sister. <laughs> right? Helper does not mean weaker. In fact, God is referred to as a helper throughout the Bible. So unless you are going to make the biblical claim that the God is the weakest being created simply to serve human needs, like which is an impossible argument, you cannot say that Eve is inferior to Adam. In fact what you would have to say is that Adam's strength is not adequate unto himself. What he needed was a helper, which implies partnership, strengths mutually working together, a, a context for interdependence. And then you keep going in the Bible. What do you see? At each step, right, God could have fostered radical individualism, but he doesn't. When he calls Abraham, What does he do? He forms him into a great nation. He doesn't say, Abe, why don't you and I just grab some amazing Babylonian wine, some lamb, and just chill? You and I, Abe, let's do it. He doesn't. He forms a nation through Abraham. When the Hebrew people are trapped in Egypt... He doesn't just hang out with Moses. He sends Moses to form, to rescue his people, and then forms into a community, right? Giving them laws and practices, a way of being in the world. And of course, when this people goes off the rails, right, and they go into exile, they don't just go as individuals. God doesn't say, "You nailed it. You missed the mark. You nailed it." The whole community goes, right, which this sets the stage for the New Testament. And Jesus enters the world. He doesn't just say, hey, you, Peter, you and me, let's go meet and hang out one-on-one in a coffee shop. He forms a community of 12 disciples as a way to saying, hey, I've never given up on the community of Israel. Here's the new 12. Let's do this. But as the New Testament unfolds, you start to see this really nuanced picture of what biblical community is meant to you look like? Let's start with 1 Corinthians 12. In this, Paul is writing to a church in Corinth, and he's trying to tease out what does it look like for God's people to be in community together? It's pretty interesting. Let's just read, this is just verse 12, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. Let's unpack this for a second. First, God forms a community of people. But this is not a picture of conformity. Sometimes we think this. We think, oh, I'm going to be in community. What does that mean? I just need to conform to everyone else. But that's actually not what Paul is saying. Right? A body metaphor he's trying to use, right, to say there's a lot of difference. And it's actually as those different parts come together, they form one unity. James Dunn in the Word Biblical Commentary writes, the body is one not despite its diversity, but is one body only by virtue of its diversity. Without the diversity, the body would be a monstrosity. Think about this. Imagine right now in your mind's eye, a giant eye walks into the room. What is that? That's a monster. That is what kids dress up as on Halloween to scare one another. The biblical picture of community is that we all are different parts, and it's actually in our diversity, our authentic expression of gifts and story, that we come together to form a functional, a living body in the world. God actually doesn't want your conformity. He wants you to be who he formed you to be and use those gifts and talents and perspectives and bring them into the community to offer all of you who you are. Not conforming to some ideal, but aligning with who he made you in a collection of difference. And that's how we form a biblical community. But There's more here. It's also clear, just as in Genesis 2, individual strength is not adequate verse 21 the eye cannot say to the hand i don't need you and the head cannot say to the feet i don't need you right paul is saying in the first century a direct contradiction of how many of us in our culture operate i don't need this other person in the room right paul's saying no 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 that's not the way it works I want you to do a silly exercise, but I just want to make sure this is never forgotten in your life. Turn to the person sat next to you and say, Paul tells me I need you. Do it. This is going to be so awkward. <laughs> Embrace the awkwardness. the point is, it is not good for humans to be alone. Specifically, verse 18, God arranged the members in the body, each of them as He chose. There's no accidents. Right? This group of people here, God has brought this group of people here to operate right, out of their giftedness, out of their stories, so that we as a body can rely on one another and offer who we are so that this body can flourish. Right now, as we use our uniqueness in the body, we bring our gifts. Paul writes in verse 26, if one member suffers, all suffer together. For if one member is honored, all rejoice together. And the flow of this text is pivotal. Notice the flow. What do you do? You show up and you bring who you are. You serve. You participate. You offer yourself to the body. And in the midst of participating, what happens? The body carries you in the ups and downs of life. In a consumeristic culture, we invert that. We show up to the group and saying, hey, are you going to meet my needs? And if the group doesn't meet our needs, we're like, I'm done, I bail. Right, phobo, right? The fear of a better offer. This is what we often do in culture. We, we think, I'm going to say yes to everything, but I'm only really going to be saying yes 30%, just in case... Something better pops up, I'm going to jump on it. Fear of the better offer. So we live with this cultural understanding of, I'm going to keep my hands open. I'm not going to commit to anything and see what serves me best. Paul could not imagine a more confusing way of approaching church life. Have you ever noticed, uh, if you read through the New Testament, like especially Paul's letters, you'll read it's like, to the brothers and sisters in X town, to the brothers and sisters. You notice that, right? We studied 1 Corinthians uh, last year and you just see it all the time. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 33. So then my brothers, you know, when you gather to eat, you shall eat together. In 1 Corinthians 15, it comes out six times. In Romans 15, I urge you brothers by our Lord Jesus Christ, right? It's like all the time. But the interesting thing is like, think about how you actually treat that when you read it. We often treat it more like a punctuation mark than a theological statement. But this only reveals our modern bias. And this is important. So in our world, when we think of togetherness and we think of like the pinnacle of togetherness, and you see this in Hollywood, most movies, Instagram, what is it? It's some sort of marriage or romantic love narrative. That's how we imagine togetherness. Romantic love. I found my significant mother, my soulmate, right? This is how we frame it. And yet, in the New Testament, no image for the church occurs more often than that of the metaphor of family, specifically brothers and sisters. And this is really important because in the ancient Mediterranean world, Actually, the most intense emotional bonding doesn't actually occur between spouses in marriage or in romantic love. It occurs between siblings who share the same father. Brothers and sisters. So in Paul's world, marriages are essentially a way to create contractual unions between clans and promote offspring. And so when Paul writes in the New Testament about the nature of biblical community, and he talks about brothers and sisters, he's saying, we are going to be the most committed, intense, connected people ever. Brothers and sisters isn't a punctuation mark. It is a theological statement of profound implications, right? The church was never intended to be a loosely aligned people that just sort of hang out. We were meant to be a family, and not our version of family, but family as understood by Paul, right? Where the brothers and the sisters sharing the same father have the closest connection, affection, and solidarity in the ancient world. But the thing is, in the New Testament, Paul doesn't simply just clarify how community is going to function, but also why. Right? Why does he form this diverse group of people with different cultural backgrounds, political affiliations, gifting, stories, narratives, into a family? Why does he do that? Now, right after Jesus' resurrection, and just before he, sends into he ascends into heaven, he actually sends this community, right, this diverse family to be his witnesses in the world. Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And while I think we can certainly hear this as an individual call, because I think it is, But this isn't exactly what Jesus is saying. He is telling the church community, family, to be his witness in the world. Remember, in Acts 1, they don't just all like catch trains and boats and like hightail it to different corners of the earth. They continue to live as a communal witness in Jerusalem. This is where Acts 2 becomes really interesting. Right, just one chapter after this, the author of Acts says, and this is how they took Jesus' commission seriously. Acts 2, 42 to 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and have everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. There's tons to say here, but I just want to say this. Right, the author of Acts connects the communal life of the church with the church's witness in the world as they ate in each other's homes, as they worshiped together, as they studied the scriptures together and prayed together, the world watched and said, I want to be a part of that family. The author doesn't say, you know, and every day, every individual went out and shared about Jesus with their coworkers, I'm sure that was true. But the focus, the emphasis is the communal life of worship and love informed their witness in the world. To me, it sounds like they took Jesus' words, right, in the upper room pretty seriously where he says in John 13, 35, By this, all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So what do we see in this arc, right, Genesis through Acts? We see a few things. One, God created human beings to be in relationship. He did not create us to just do our own thing, to rock life on our own. Two, he formed Israel and the church to be an interdependent community, family, body. And three, this community is meant to be his witness in the world. And yet, if we're honest, right, the gravity of our culture, the undertow of our culture makes this really, really hard. There's three, like, just sort of cultural assumptions I want to just sort of air, just to sort of go through them a little bit. One is sort of like, what about my needs? What about my freedom? And the third one is, about, like, what about my growth? Right, and these are three sort of background assumptions that are sort of always in a conversation about community, Let's start with what about my needs? Like in our culture, we often approach personal relationships as ends to meet my personal needs. Like if you stop really meeting my needs, I'm probably not going to hang out with you. That's kind of how we approach friendship, community, human beings made in the image of God. They become utilitarian. But this is the thing, right? Read the New Testament. There will not be one command about liking one another. Not one. Consistently, what does Jesus call us to? Love one another. Right? He's bringing us a fellowship of difference. We're not going to agree on every political agenda in the United States. We're not gonna have the same cultural background and cultural assumptions. We're gonna have slightly different beliefs in different areas. We're not gonna see eye to eye on everything. And you know why that's okay? Because this church is not founded on our ability to agree on one another. Our church is founded on Jesus coming to earth, forming a community, suffering, dying, and being resurrected and saying, all right guys, I am making you one through my life, death, and sacrifice, not your preferences. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 12. Right? Paul says we're a body that is meant to serve, participate, show up. And when we do that, what happens, right? In our lows, we're carried by the community in our highs, we get high fives, and we celebrate together. Right, but in a consumer culture, we invert this. So what about my names becomes our primary operating question, and then what happens? We show up at the community, we lean back, and we kind of wait for everyone to like, know our assumptions about what we need, and then meet those assumptions, and we think, man, I'm bailing on this community if they don't meet my prereqs for caring for me. And you know what happens? We start with the question of what about my needs, and in the process, we undermine getting our needs met. Because the way needs are met in communal life is we show up, we commit, we participate, and in that process, we form family. And then the family carries us. All right, what about my freedom? See, so, you know, in modern American culture, we also approach freedom different than Jesus would. We approach freedom primarily as independence. Right? Any constraint on what we can do, we see as undermining freedom. Right? Interdependence is actually seen as limiting this isn't actually how Jesus approaches freedom at all. This is not a biblical assumption as our culture, right? We see freedom as the absence of restraint, but for Jesus freedom is right constraints that make us free in God. Tim Keller and the reason for God offers the example of a musician. So the musician, right? Implements constraints. We call that practice right? Practice is limiting. You cannot be doing all the other things. You cannot be entertaining FOMO and FOBO and like keeping your hands open. If you want to be good at an instrument, you need to practice. You need to say, I'm committed to this. And it's only through self and prose constraint practice that someone actually becomes an excellent musician, becomes really good at their craft. And the same is true in the Christian life. If we don't actually impose some limitations, we actually cannot flourish in community. I found this, you know, from my personal story and narrative. Um, you know, marriage. Marriage is a relationship, a covenant that is inherently self-limiting. You cannot date all these other people. You cannot do all these other things. But I have found marriage, which is an inherent constraint, to be the most transformative place for my discipleship, where I've learned a greater and deeper sense of freedom. But it was through constraint. It's in the commitment of the marriage, I learned so much about myself, my own brokenness, and God in that place has transformed me. when we approach freedom as defined by our culture, we end up finding ourselves lonely. Third, what about my growth? So one of the ways it's interesting that I think we approach, especially right now, as like we approach growth as modern Americans, particularly if you're younger, it's, it's kind of this like approach of growth is like new adventures. Right? It's like, I'm growing, I traveled, I read a new book. It's always the new stimulus. Like you're growing if you're doing something you haven't done before. And and I totally like, I'm the first to sign up for the new thing, like I, my wife's nodding. She's like, yes, God help us. Um, And like, I totally get that, totally get it. If you're there, I, I totally get it. But so from a biblical perspective though, Growth is transformation of character into the likeness of Jesus, not just new adventures. And honestly, for many of us, for most of us, that actually means looking at our character defects, our blind spots. Right? Jesus tells this uber comical story in the Sermon on the Mount about the guy who's walking around, like telling other people, you got a splint in your eye, you know, and he has a log. And he's just giving people concussions left and right. <laughs> you just got that, thank you. <laughs> right, but I think we do this, right? We enter community, we don't realize what's going on. Why? That's why our culture calls them blind spots. But this is the thing, they're only blind to us. Everyone else sees them. And we actually need everyone else to be like, sorry, you actually have a log in your eye? Look behind you, there's 10 people on the ground (laughs) that you have just knocked over and laid out like Mike Tyson. We need one another. I, I have a silly story that happened this morning. I got this person's permission to share it. But, like, we also just hurt one another. In community, I think we just need to acknowledge that. Like if you hang around church long enough, you're bound to offend someone. So I offended someone this morning. um, Right before church. Like last week I had been joking with someone about the size of their Bible. And I was like, they just literally have this huge Bible. And I was like, man, your left arm, right arm is just gonna be enormous. And like, if you don't switch arms, you're gonna be like, you know, the bathroom's over there. You know, with this one arm. So I was joking last week, and I came in this week, and I said to her, man, you're looking huge. And she looked at me. (laughs) And I was like, hmm, that didn't land how I thought it was going to. (laughs) And she said to me, you don't tell a woman over 60 they look huge. (laughs) I was like point taken. Yeah, never doing that again. I am so sorry. That's not what I meant. But the point is if you hang around church long enough, you're going to hurt someone. You're going to offend someone. You're going to say something. And you know, honestly, I'm just grateful that this person was like strong enough in herself to say to me, hmm, not cool. Right? Because alternatively, She could have heard that, and my intention was not at all to say anything, right, mean. I was just joking about the size of her Bible and her arm getting ripped. (laughs) But I chose the wrong word, and she could have held that on for years. She could have not come back. And the truth is, I think a lot of us carry some of those wounds. If you've been in church long enough... There's probably been someone who has said something to you that maybe is in the back of your mind every so often. Because the truth is, sometimes we get hurt in community. Sometimes we get hurt in our homes that we grew up in. The biological family, which was meant to be this place to nurture our flourishing, becomes a place of trauma and damage and pain. And sometimes we wish, God, God, would you just heal me of this so I don't repeat this cycle over and over again, living out this pain? The hard part is, almost always, God brings healing to relationally caused wounds in the context of relationships, in the context of the church. It's not always the message we want to hear, but it is the truth. God often heals the parts that are injured in community through community. Aaron told me recently, we were talking last week, you know, because he's grown up in the church, I didn't, and he, he said, you know, the truth is, like, having grown up in the church, he's like, you know, some of my biggest relational wounds happened in poor local church communication relationships. And he also said, some of the best things I've ever experienced have also happened in the local church. And that's the reality of living in a broken world that God is redeeming. There's this great quote by John Mark Comer uh, from his book On Suffering Love. I'm going to read it. It's a little longer. but I think it's really beautiful and very poetic. Live in the thick web of interdependent relationships Quietly defy the individualism that is wreaking havoc across the West. Surrender yourself to the autonomy of love. Place yourself in the constraint of community, for it is there we are set free. Give up your preferences for the sake of others. Enroll in the school of agape, school of love. When you fail, throw yourself on God's mercy. Come back to the table eat bread, drink wine, ingest the forgiving love of God. Repent. Repent again and again. Risk vulnerability. We will get hurt and we will hurt in return. That's part of facing grace. Our greatest wounds come from relationships, but so does our deepest healing. The risk is worth it. What does it look like for us to keep the coal of our lives and the fire of God's people? Because if you look out in our culture right now, you'll see actually that the alternative is not bearing very good fruit. Cigna did a, a study recently in which they surveyed more than 20,000 U.S. adults ages 18 and older and found some pretty Pretty common findings, actually. 46% 46 of people feel alone. 73% feel like they have no one who really understands them. 73%. 43% feel like their relationships are not meaningful. 43% feel isolated from others. And Gen Z, when they break out, From all the sort of demographic information, is by far the loneliest generation in America. So, part of our communal witness as a church is to model the conviction of Psalm 68:6. God sets the lonely in families we become a place where people who don't have a home can come in, participate, and be included. A place where then they can use their gifts, how God made them and experience the joy of serving and participating. And they also get to grow and heal, right, as their blind spots are surfaced. And eventually the hope is all of us are transformed more and more into the character and the likeness of Jesus. Now, as I was trying to imagine, like, so how do you, when we think about community, like, I think it's helpful maybe to talk about it in three different frames, three different ways of participating. The first, I would say, is something like the big church gathering, this. This is part of what it means to be a community. We show up to a space where we have common worship and common teaching, so that as a large community, we can move forward together. This is also a space that's a little more diverse. All right, we have infants in this room, and we have folks in their 80s, and we're all contributing to the body in different ways. This is a place where if you're new, this might be the first place you know, you hit the ground. And my hope is, you know, you're welcomed into this space. We're not perfect. Absolutely not. But we want to create a space where all of us are welcomed and included and can express yourself. Maybe not perfectly, but have a place where you can authentically move forward based on who God has formed you to be. But this is not the end of biblical community. There's also sort of, a, I think, another element. It's like the home community, right? The number of people that can sit around a big table, depending on the size of the table, you know, anywhere between, you know, <laughs> 6 and 15. We have, one in, we have an enormous island in our house that could probably do 20, but that's pushing the edge, you know? But it's a, it's a larger space, but this is actually the training ground for interdependent relationships. Because the truth is, in this space, We'll hang out, we'll do a potluck after. It's sort of a space to connect and be together and in worship. But it's, it's not really a great training spot for loving and serving and laying your life down for other people. It's not a great spot to share your suffering and be carried by others. It's just a little too big for that. My, the home community is the space where we really practice Able. We, we bless, we serve, we serve. We study the scripture together. We pray together. And then also there's sort of, I think, a third level. It's kind of like the intimate community. You know, this is that, you know, the person you worship with on Sunday, you come here, you give them a high five, you say how you're doing, and they say good, and you pretend like they are actually good. And, um, you know, then you hang out in your home community. And then you say, hey, let's, let's grab coffee. Let's go for a walk. Let's, let's hang out. It's in that space of intimate fellowship where you confess your sins. You say, man, you know, look at the people behind me. Clearly, I have a log in my eye. Help me get it out. This is where the other person pulls you aside and says, you clearly have a log in your eye. Look at the trail of people behind you. This is the place where we say, I'm really struggling. Help me. This is the place where iron sharpens iron. This is the place where we are supporting one another, praying for one another. When we are just weeping in a mess, we say, help me, I have no idea what I'm doing. And I guess my question to you this morning, you know, going from, you know, the stratosphere down to the ground is, what would it look like for you to start one practice this week and going forward that leads to greater participation in one of these three areas? You know, is it, you know, it's, it's sort of committing. You know, maybe, maybe an option would be it's committing. Like, on Sunday morning, whether you want to come or not, whether you're like, I don't really want to hear Tony speak or Aaron speak. I don't really want to high-five people as they come in. Like, I'm going to show up every Sunday, because I know that God has something for us. Or, is it, you know, I'm already coming, what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to serve in this space. I'm not just going to be committing to coming, I'm going to commit to high-fiving the people while they're coming in. (laughs) Or making sure that every child, from the nursery through the high school, is like, loved and cared for and welcomed so that not just you and me have a good experience, but the next generation of the church feels like, yes, I want to follow Jesus. Or is it, you know what, like, I'm doing this, but I don't have a home space. I don't have those 10 people that I can call and say, I need help. Or that ten, group of 10 that I can like, study the scriptures with or pray with, that can, I can like, share when I got that promotion and I can be like, yes, you guys prayed for me that I would get this. And now we can celebrate and have a party together. Or maybe it's, you're afraid really on some deep level of being known. And so you do those spaces you don't really reach out and do the one-on-one thing because you're worried that if you let people in, they'll actually just reject you. I think a lot of us carry that fear around, so we keep people at arm's distance. And maybe there's an invitation of the Spirit to kind of lean in there and be like, all right, God, I'm going to go deeper with a couple people so you can really work in me and transform me. And as we shift into worship, I just want to invite us to turn to Jesus and say, All right, God, what does it look like for me to faithfully respond to your invitation today? What does it look like for for me to participate in this body, in your kingdom, in your church, not as a consumer, not as simply a sort of a rugged individualist, but as a creature formed for relationship? situated in the church to be formed in your image so that we can be a witness in the world. I want to invite the worship team up. I just want to invite us just to sit in a posture of prayer for a moment. And Holy Spirit, I just invite you to speak to us. Invite you to convict us. I just kind of have a sense that some of us, in, um, in Mark 4, Jesus talks about soil, and he talks about there's different types of soil, and it sort of becomes this sense of like the receptivity of our heart. And I just have a sense that some of us, you know, come in this morning with kind of hard soil and hard hearts to this message. It's like, man, that's inconvenient. I don't know if I want to do this. And I just didn't want to encourage you to enter in a dialogue with God that in the end, we're not interested in behavior modification. We're interested in heart transformation, which starts with just being honest with Jesus. So God, we just, we bring our hearts and our minds and our stories and all of who we are into your presence. God, do do the heavy lifting We are broken creatures with logs in our eyes and we don't even know it. And yet you intend us as your broken, vulnerable creatures to be your witnesses in the world. God, form us into a people. It is not good for any of us to be alone. Form us into a family, form us into a body founded on your sacrifice, not our effort. Founded on your resurrection. Founded on your death on the cross. Jesus, it is in you that we become one. It is in your presence. God, we worship you. Jesus, you are the one our heart longs for community of the church is grounded in you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. May the diversity of this fellowship reflect your diversity. May our unity reflect your unity and forever in all we do bring you glory.